This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. I would certainly say it's of it's huge historical significance because it's a great you know, insight into what's going on in Protestantism, both as it develops from the Reformation and specifically uh, as it's sort of swirling around England in the 17th century. So it's historically and theologically very important on that level. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? I'm wonderful and uh, looking forward to our discussion with a uh, good friend of us both and former professor of mine and on a topic uh, that I took with him maybe 20 years ago, but still relevant uh, to our concern. We'll see how much you remember. Uh, nor- normally, normally on this uh, on this podcast, we will talk to authors of new books uh, just to get them get have our make our listeners aware of these books. But th- in this case, we're actually going to discuss an old book, "The Doctrine of Justification by Faith" by John Owen. But uh, it's a new publication of that book. Soli Deo Gloria, an imprint of Reformation Heritage Books, has just reprinted this in 2023 with an introductory essay by our guest today, Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, uh, writer, podcaster extraordinaire, and uh, and probably multiple-time guest on Theology on the Go. So, Carl, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be back and always good to spend time with you guys, even if it's virtually. Yes, it's better It's better than nothing, but it'd be, it'd be even better if we were in the room together. Uh, I wanted to... I wanted to start by asking a question about this Owen volume. Um, why why did he write this book on justification by faith? It, what was it in the middle of the 17th century that was under attack or, or, or did he sense was being strained um, exegetically or socially or theologically with respect to this cornerstone doctrine? Yeah, that's a good question. Of course, there's there's both a, 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 a longer context and a more immediate context of the book. I think the longer context is justification by grace through faith is a very important Protestant doctrine. Uh, I think it would be wrong to say that that it was the the doctrine that initially precipitated the Reformation, but it fairly quickly emerges as uh, a central point of thinking in Protestantism, and it has implications. Uh, not only for ecclesiology, for our understanding of the ministry versus the priesthood, these kind of things. It also has uh, an effect on how we understand the sacraments to operate. And above all, perhaps, it has uh, key central importance to how we understand uh, the way we receive the grace of God, the way we are uh, righteous before God, the way we stand we're justified before a holy God. So for a Protestant to write on justification in the 17th centuries, on one level, is not unusual at all. I mean, that's a, a, it's a key Reformation issue. Of course, the, the articulation of justification in the Reformation in some ways raised as many questions as it answered. Uh, the whole issue of how do you tie together good works with faith? Where do good works play a role in salvation became one uh, question. Another question which you're getting into, into more technical territory is, you know, the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. Uh, is that all of his righteousness? Is is it is it the work that he does on the cross, or is it the work that he does, you know, from the moment his ministry is inaugurated up and through the cross uh, and to the resurrection? Uh, so these are the kind of questions that were beginning to bubble up with 
some pungency in the middle of the 17th century, both in England and uh, on the continent. And it's against that kind of background that Owen is, is writing his work. So there's a general, we might say, Protestant concern or Protestant polemic here, uh, which we could trace back to the Reformation. And there are also things that are occurring, you know, questions that have been raised precisely because of the Protestant doctrine that Owen is having to address, things that Calvin and Luther never addressed because they weren't issues particularly in their day. You say in the introduction that there's a broad anti-Pelagian consensus and it, it would almost seem like, well, if everybody's an anti-Pelagian, then we're all going to come to terms on the doctrine of justification by faith. And yet it doesn't seem to shake out that way. How is there, why is there, what kind of debate, what kind of fissures are going on within anti-Pelagianism? I mean, yeah. even Rome itself, who reformed often accused of being Pelagian, probably would not have thought of themselves that way, yeah. um, or at least openly denied that they were Pelagian in their sympathies. So how how is this a, a sort of in-house debate among anti-Pelagians? Yeah, well, when you think about Pelagian, well, one of the things that in some ways I think is a little confusing to Protestants, of course, is, is the way that a man like Luther casts the Reformation. And Luther very much presents himself as, as uh, re-litigating the, the dispute between Augustine and Pelagius in the ancient church. So Luther himself thinks that the battle against Rome is the battle against Pelagians, a battle against those who place too much authority or too much confidence in, in human ability, even after the fall. So it's, it's a very powerful part of, we might say, Protestant mythology to think of the Reformation really as a reiteration of the battles of the early fifth century. In actual fact, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's complicated on a couple of fronts. One, Rome itself uh, has a diversity of opinion on, the, on what we would call the dynamics of grace in the 16th and on into the 17th century. So within Rome itself, there'll be those who are pretty strict predestinarians. And there are others who hold, like the Jesuits, for example, who hold a position that will actually be very influential on the Arminians. Uh, the, the strict reform, people like me would regard as semi-Pelagian in, in many ways. So the whole Pelagius versus Augustine model, it's part of the mythology, but it's not a great guide to what divides Protestants from Catholics. Uh, because it divides Catholics from Catholics. It divides Catholics from Catholics. The real issue dividing Protestants from Catholics is... For want of a better term, it's somewhat simplistic to put it this way. We won't say it's the content of justification uh, or it's it's how you get the righteousness of Christ. If if I was sitting in this room now with Cardinal Bellarmine, you know, greatest Jesuit mind of the late uh, 16th century, and I were to ask him, do you believe that we are justified uh, by the sovereign action of God and solely by the righteousness of Christ? Bellarmine would say yes. He, I, I don't think he would disagree with that formulation. But where we would really disagree is, okay, so how do we get this righteousness of Christ? Where does it come to me from? And Bellarmine, of course, would tie it very much to the sacraments and would see us receiving it in, by what we might call impartation. Now, impartation doesn't mean that it's like a you know, righteousness, like a physical lump within us. 
but it tilts that kind of way. It, that, that's not a, a wholly misguided way to think about it. Whereas a Protestant, uh, say Owen, is going to argue, well, I agree with Bellamino that we're, we're justified by the righteousness of Christ, but it actually comes through grasping Christ by faith, not through the sacraments, and it is imputed to me. It's accounted to me. It's credited to me. It's not something that is sort of infused into me, if we can use that kind of language. So the Pelagian debate, we might put it this way, the Pelagian debate is about the framework of salvation, the eternal framework of salvation. It's about predestination. The justification debate is about how that salvation becomes a reality in the life of the individual. Uh, both, I'm trying to think now of uh, a Thomist, a Dominican in the 16th century, would probably agree with me pretty much on predestination, would probably agree with Luther and Calvin in the broad terms of, of how they understood predestination. But where he would disagree is, you know, how is that predestination executed in time for you to get the grace of God? Does it come through the sacraments or does it come through the preaching and the believing of the word of God? And that's the key difference. And yet in this treatise, Owen's not just sparring with Roman Catholics, right? I mean, he's also no. he's also sparring with, I don't know whether we should call the Sicinians Protestants, uh, if that's even the right thing. Certainly he would have regarded them as heretical. But then also in view are other Protestants, particularly his great arch critic on this point, perhaps Richard Baxter. Yeah. So how yeah. do how do we understand what Luther what uh, Owen's doing sparring sort yeah. of intra-Protestant yeah. skirmishes here? Well, Socinianism really is a, is a movement that it, it it finds its origins in the thinking of a couple of Italians in the 16th century, but becomes very influential really in Poland of all places. It, it's a kind of odd thing that Socinianism starts in Italy, becomes very influential in Poland, and represents a kind of radical. End of, you know, if we want to use the word reform, we're using it in a very, very generic way here. The radical end of sort of reform Protestantism that uh, really doesn't like what we might call today, doesn't like any kind of abstractions at all, doesn't like any anything that isn't concrete. So, you know, if you're going to be justified, justification for the Socinians has to involve moral transformation. It really comes down to Jesus is a great example, and our justification comes down to us following Jesus's great example. Uh, so that's one thing that uh, Owen is, is hitting against. That's not, in some ways, that's not a particularly tough issue to deal with. You, you get into Romans, there's some pretty straightforward exegetical arguments against the Sicinians. Trickier is a man like Richard Baxter. Now, You've got to remember there's also an immediate English context here. In England of the 17th century, there's a lot of religious sectarianism. Uh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the Protestant world. And there's a civil war that's taken place. A king has been executed. Uh, the world really does seem to be, you know, we think about the world today seeming uncertain and unstable. It must have seen much more so in the 17th century in, in England in the 1640s, 1650s. Uh, onwards in the 1660s. And, and a big question for a lot of the Puritan side of things, the Protestant side of things, is you know, where do works? We, we need a theology that doesn't allow people to just go off and behave any crazy way they can. And with the best will in the world as a committed Protestant, I have to say, you know, the, the, the tricky thing for Protestantism coming from the Reformation is always the place of good works. 
It's why Catholics continue to press that issue polemically today. When they're still pressing, you know, where do good works fit in? 500 years after they first pressed that point, that may not mean there isn't an answer, but it does mean it's a good question to ask. And Richard Baxter belongs to what we, we somewhat pejoratively call a sort of neo-nomian tradition within uh, English reform thinking. And it, it, it has variations, uh, but essentially it, it argues that our justification is, is based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, but the imparted righteousness of Christ also plays a role as well, that, that works are essential and also somewhat constitutive of justification. And that's what Owen wants to get at, because in, in Owen's mind, that's a very serious concession towards the kind of works righteousness that one finds in Catholicism. I think I want to be sympathetic to Baxter in terms of his concern. I think he's he's facing chaos in, in England, and he really does want to make sure that people understand that the gospel does not justify behaving in any way you want. It doesn't justify social chaos. On the other hand, I think I, I'm with Owen in thinking that he steps over that, he tilts too far the other way and renders the possibility of a kind of legalism to be a very, very real possibility within, within Christianity. Is this the debate over the hot peppercorn uh, in which faith is almost something that we bring tiny as it is in our hands? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and that's that's very much Baxter's Baxter's kind of position. Of course, that is the title of uh, Hans Borsman's great book on Baxter on justification, which which I disagree with actually at key points. I think you wrote a book <laughs> in response to it, as I recall. Yeah, I did, and Hans is a good friend. I, I, there's no, you know, there's no personal right at, at stake in this, um, though it is interesting to see where Hans has gone in the years since. That Hans has moved in a much more sacramental and participatory kind of direction on justification, and I've often thought that you know you can see the the hot peppercorn of that in some ways in his work on Richard Baxter. Uh, and I'm not saying anything to you there that I wouldn't say to his face. So I'm not, you know you don't have to edit that. Whether we can't read out of his uh, books, yeah, you can't read out of his books, yeah. A very fine scholar, but we do disagree uh, on on this particular issue. Carl, you you, you talked briefly about neonomianism, or b- broadly speaking, neonomianism, Baxter, uh, and and what he represents. Uh, on on the other side of it, Owen is concerned about antinomianism, yeah. and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that concern. And we we <clears throat> we. We can we can understand what he was worried about with respect to Baxter's yeah. theology. Yeah. What, what what are his concerns with respect to antinomianism? Well, in some ways, they're the same as Baxter's. You know, Owen himself certainly doesn't want to articulate a view of justification whereby anything goes. Uh, and <clears throat> one of the things that's particularly concerning to these guys is the notion of eternal justification. And eternal justification, really, what's what's happening when you think about predestination. We, we take up the, you know, we take up our salvation into eternity at that point. We think that the reason we have faith here and now is because God is elected in all eternity. What eternal justification does is it sort of takes up a bit more and it actually takes up the, the fact that in its most extreme form that God from all eternity has regarded the elect as righteous. 
And that transforms, of course, the notion of faith. If from the moment I'm conceived in my mother's womb, God considers me righteous, then what is faith? That moment when I'm converted, when I, when I exert faith, what is faith? Well, faith really is sort of reduced at that point to the realization that I am what I always have been. And that raises all kinds of questions, uh, not simply for works as it happens. There are all kinds of questions that that raises uh, across the board. But that really does then, this sort of doctrine really there, does then tilt towards uh, fulfilling the, the Roman Catholic caricature of Protestantism. That, hey, if you're justified by faith, if it's all down to Christ's work, you don't need to behave in any particular way. You can just get on with life as it is. So Owen's concern is, is with notion of eternal justification. And if you wanted to look up a, a theologian, I think, who's a particularly fine, I think he's a particularly fine advocate of, of the antinomian position, it would be Tobias Crisp. That would be the name that comes to mind. In fact, Baxter refers to Crispianism as, as his sort of target for the antinomian. So, as far as I know from reading about the life of Crisp, he was a godly man. I mean, Crisp was not some crazy, doing whatever he wanted, antinomian guy, but his theology took a lot up into eternity. And to put it in, I suppose, tech, more technical terms, potentially really negated the significance of history and the significance of the Christian life. And, and, and like Baxter, Owen doesn't want to be over there either. Uh, I'm, I, I'm mindful as I give this answer of, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones somewhere makes the comment, to the effect, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, that uh, one's preaching should not be antinomian, but there should always be enough there for you to be suspected of antinomianism. <laughs> you know. That's, you know, if you're going to err on any side, you're going to tilt slightly towards the free grace uh, side of things. Uh, Now, in 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 Owens, um, we're we're winding down in terms of time, but I just want to cover one or two more things. In Owens' uh, doctrine of justification, the imputation of Christ's active obedience yeah. plays a, a a vital role. And and yeah. I wonder if you could articulate because so, sometimes that's that's been a contested doctrine even today yeah. in yeah. reform circles. Why is it so important in Owens' presentation of the doctrine of justification? Yeah, well, it's important because it was a hot button issue in the uh, in the 17th century for the kind of reasons we've just been talking about. I, I I've not really followed the debates relative to new perspective, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, in the way it's bubbled up in more recent years. But in Owen's day, uh, I mean, you, the imputation of of both passive and active righteousness was seen certainly by a man like Owen as a way of of really cutting off any possibility of the kind of neo-nomianism that you find in Baxter. That you know, one could say, you know, summarizing Baxter's theology crudely, one could say that uh, the the imputation of the passive righteousness of Christ, the death of Christ, etc., uh, deals, you know, gets us forgiveness. Uh, but there's need for more than forgiveness for full redemption. And I'm conscious here that I'm I'm somewhat misrepresenting Baxter. I, I should probably say, you know, the, the cruder versions of Baxter's theology as it plays out in the wider world could leave you vulnerable to, to thinking that just because it's only the passive righteousness that's imputed, there is something left that you have to bring to the table. You have to positively fulfill the law. Uh, in order to to be righteous before God, 
It's a big debate at the Westminster Assembly. And interestingly enough, the Assembly uh, doesn't include the word whole relative to Christ's righteousness in the confession. Because I think it's a consent, it, it wants to keep the advocates of single imputation on board. I think there are probably backroom discussions that we don't know about, but can only speculate about that are, because it seems that the, the double imputation guys win. Uh, they win the arguments, but they don't, you know, they, they, they don't get the win in the document. Some deal is cooked up behind the scenes, which, by the way, as a Presbyterian, I find that very encouraging. I'm a big, I love it, it when I discover, I love it when I find pragmatism among the so-called godly, because it's very <laughs> helpful for anybody operating in a presbytery today to know that sometimes you just got to get the deal done. You know, <laughs> But that's why it's a big deal in Owen's day, because single imputation would be seen as playing into the hands of the legalists, the neonomians. Um, but so in the Savoy Declaration, right? I mean, he, the, Owen's own doctrinal statement yeah. is quite more explicit on this. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, and I think it's that's because that's Owen's declaration. You're not dealing with committees there. You're not wanting to keep people on board. Um, he and Goodwin agreed, and so that went into the document. Yeah, they were. Uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine anybody disagreeing with them and getting away with it, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> So, Carl, last question. Um, this, this uh, obviously, this is a this is a reprint of an old book on an important topic. Is this something that is this a book that you would still put in people's hands today? Obviously, some of our listeners will be interested in it for historical reasons, and they love reading yeah. Owen, and they they yeah. want to dive more deeply into some of these Puritan sources. But, but it, 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 would it be one of your I don't know three or four go to books on justification by faith or and even if not, where where does it fit? Where where does it have a significant voice or role to play? I, I think yes, it would be one of my three or four. Uh, it might even be my top one. Uh, I mean, I haven't I haven't asked myself that question for a while. I would certainly see it's a, it's of huge historical significance because it's a great you know insight into what's going on in Protestantism, both as it develops from the Reformation and specifically uh, as it's sort of swirling around England in the 17th century. So it's historically and theologically very important on that level. Secondly, I think Owen brings out what he does so well is he he, he shows how justification needs to be integrated with broader theological structures, you know, the whole covenant structure which has implications beyond justification, is there in the work. So I think it's it's a really good example of showing people how theology fits together. You can, you can talk about justification, but actually that connects to your doctrine of God. It connects to your doctrine of how God has revealed himself and acts in history. It's very rich in terms of being an integrative sort of theological exercise, on that front. And thirdly, as somebody who thinks he basically gets justification right, uh, I'd want to say, yeah, it's a very important statement of the correct position on justification. Does it answer all the questions that have come up since? Does it address the sort of questions that somebody like N.T. Wright would want to raise about justification? Not really. And that's why we, we can't simply, uh, I think, as, as, as theologians or pastors, just read Owen. We, we, we can't just be antiquarians at that level. But I think it's, it, 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 it's a useful place to stand in order to assess and think about the kind of questions that are being raised by thoughtful scholars uh, like N.T. Wright and company in the present day. 
Carl, thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time today uh, to discuss this book and this essay. And uh, again, we commend it to our listeners and, and appreciate your time with us. Thanks very much. Been lovely to be on with you. Our friends at Reformation Heritage Books have given us a few copies of The Doctrine of Justification by Faith, this reprint of John Owen's famous work with the introductory essay by our guest, Carl Truman. And if you're interested in the possibility of winning a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org or theologyonthego.org. There are uh, areas there for you to enter your information, and we'd love to see this book in your hands. If you know anyone who might be helped by this podcast, please pass it along to them. Rate and review the podcast wherever you download it. That helps us get the word out. And if you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And on behalf of James and myself and the whole crew here at the Alliance, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.